Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is God, right? And uh, he's both God and man, but the cornerstone of his identity is his godness. He's always been God. He created the universe. Then at a certain point, he added in the part about being a man. And it's really important that you get that because he's not the man who became God. He's the God who took on human flesh. Amen? And as we looked at last week, the moment you get that skewed in any way, and there's a lot of weirdness in the church today, because people are overemphasizing the human part and ignoring the God part. And I'm actually going to, today, I'm going to do a second message. I want to really flesh out this thing about Jesus being God. Because until the weight of who Jesus is really presses down on your heart, you can't actually, his life, his life can't impact you. Because you can't understand the significance of an event. We're reading the Gospels, and because we emphasize the human side instead of the God side so much, we we aren't impacted by the love. We aren't impacted by his character the way we should be because we've lost focus of the awesomeness of his deity. You can't understand the significance of anything anyone does until you know who it is that is doing it. For example, uh, if my neighbor, if, you know, it's a nice summer evening, if my neighbor calls out from his back porch, hi, Chris, that's a nice thing. In my heart, I go, oh, that's nice. But that's a totally different thing than, let's say, Prime Minister Stephen Harper is in Ottawa one day, and he's like, you know, I have just got to go and say hi to that Chris guy. He flies out to Winnipeg. He drives all the way over to Steinbeck. He comes to my house on a summer's evening, and he, just to say, he drops by just to say, hi, Chris. On the surface... Those two things are exactly the same. A man said, hi, Chris, to me, and a man said, hi, Chris, to me. On the surface, they're exactly the same. But in truth, those two events are radically different, are they not? If my neighbor just calls out, hi, Chris, to me from his backyard, I go, oh, that's nice. But if Prime Minister Stephen Harper drives out here from Ottawa, takes time out of his busy schedule to come and say hi to me, I go, oh, I mean, he saw that the fact that he would take time, that he would make time, that he would think about me, that he would know me. And by the way, he doesn't, <laughs> just so you know. But it, imagine that he would. I mean, someone so important and so famous and so powerful that they would take time to actually just come and say hi to me, that is a totally different impact on my heart than my neighbor just says hi. One is, hmm, that's nice. And one is, wow, it really makes you feel something. And the same is true, exact same thing is true of Jesus. We're reading the Gospels as Christians, and, and we're reading it because we're so focused on his humanity, we read it and we go, hmm, that's nice. But when you realize who Jesus is, God took on flesh. Suddenly you go, the pages, the Gospels explode for you. Wow, I can't believe God loves me that much. But you can't get there until you first, until the weight of his godness presses down on your heart. And I can't even just do that through a message. It's not a message that does that. I just have to speak the truth here. This is something you have to go home, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, over time, you allow the weight of who God is to press in on your heart, and then you read about Jesus and you go, I can't believe he cares about us like that. And it explodes for you. So the roadmap for today's message is, I'm going to spend again a message, I want to really flesh out this thing of who Jesus is as God. 
And at the end of this message, I'm going to take you to a spectacular passage that talks about him being a man. But that passage is going to come alive for you. And when you see this side of Jesus, when you see what he really did for us when he came to earth, it is going to cause you, again, it's not the message, it's the truth, it's who Jesus is. The message is nothing. It's not my message that does this to you. It's the truth of who Jesus is. When you see what Jesus is really like, what he actually did, how far he came down to be with us, it will cause your heart to cry out to him for love and it'll change the way you live. So I'm going to give you a, the first thing I'm going to do in this message, I'm going to give you a tool. I'm going to give you a way of looking at the New Testament that is going to help you see Jesus is God in almost every passage, page, and line. And after I show you that, I'm going to bring you back to, at the end of this message. I'm going to show you what he really did for us when he became a man. And hopefully, I think the Holy Spirit is going to cause us to cry out to him in worship, and it should radically change the way we live. All right? But bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I love you. It's just a little bit. It's not nearly enough. It's very weak, I know. But I want to love you more, and I do love you. And my prayer today, Jesus, is this message... And everything we do at this church, everything that we do at this church, all of the singing and the child dedication and the messages, everything we do at this church, Jesus, I want us to be falling more and more in love with you. Help us to put aside pettiness and selfishness and getting our own way and doing things our way, Lord Jesus, that we can be a church that is absolutely, totally, and completely focused on you and in love with you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, amen? This is a Jewish book. This is a Jewish book. Not just the Old Testament, the New Testament too. What do, what do I mean when I say this is a Jewish book? This is a Jewish book uh, because it was, it was written by Jews, most, for the most part, for Jews. Now, of course, we are non-Jews. That's what it, uh, Gentiles, right? So, and, 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 and it's for us too. But it was written by Jews and to Jews. So it's a Jewish book. And this is part of the big reason why many Westerners today, when we read in this book, we don't see the whole point about Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. We don't see that screaming out at us. Like last week I preached about it. This week I'm preaching it about, about it again. And I'm telling you right here at the beginning of this message that the fact that Jesus is God... That point is the main reason for the entire New Testament. That is, the, the main reason for the... Did you know that the gospel message according to Paul, the gospel according to Paul, and I wish I had time to develop this, and I will in a message at some point, but the good news according to Paul is not a plan of salvation. That's part of the good news, but that's not the good news. The good news according to Paul was one thing. Jesus is Lord. Out of that comes a plan of salvation, forgiveness, and all sorts of stuff. But to Paul and the New Testament writers, the biggest point of the New Testament, by far, Jesus is God. But, so I've been telling you that the last two weeks. But we read the New Testament, and we don't see it hardly anywhere in there. And the reason we don't see it hardly, where, hardly anywhere in there is because we are reading a Jewish book with a Western mindset. Now, if we Westerners had written the New Testament, and if our main goal was to prove the point that Jesus is God, this is how we would do it. We're very creative. We would write the three words, Jesus is God, 
over and over and over and over again. Isn't that true? We would just keep hitting it. If that's my point, Jesus is God, we would write, Jesus is God. The thing you have to realize, however, is that is a Western way of thinking about God. When the Jews thought about God, the primary way they had for thinking about God did not involve the word God. This is the thing you have to get through your head. Because when you read in here, if you read in here looking for Jesus is God, it's true, you won't find it hardly anywhere. Did you know that nowhere in the Gospels, not one time in the Gospels, does Jesus say those three simple words, I am God? Never once. And you'll only find seven places in the rest of the New Testament, and some of those are even disputed, but you'll only find seven places in the, New Te- in the rest of the New Testament where the authors actually explicitly say Jesus is God. And so liberal scholars have for decades been saying Jesus never believed he was God because he never said it. And they've been saying and teaching people and writing all kinds of books that none of Jesus' earliest followers believed he was God either because they sure didn't talk about it a lot. And the only reason we can come to this conclusion is because we're looking for the phrase Jesus is God and you hardly find it in here. And the reason for that is because when the Jews thought about God or talked about God, the primary way they did that was not with the word God. See, the the thing you have to realize, and there's more reasons for this than just what I'm going to tell you, but here's one reason for this. One of the reasons for this is that back in Jesus' day and before then, the word God had gotten really watered down. Most of the nations around Israel had religions where they believed in many gods, many, many, many gods. And so... Uh, when you are living in a country or when you're living in a society where everybody believes in many gods, the word God starts to mean less than it does for us. See, in our Western culture, you're either brought up to be an atheist, which is no God, or you're brought up in kind of a monotheistic, you know, kind of Christianity, even if it's not true Christianity, but we're brought up in a monotheistic culture, which is there is one God, and if you're brought up in a culture where they believe in no God or one God, the word God really means something unique, doesn't it? It really means something unique. But if you live in a society where people have got tons and tons of different gods, the word God means something much less. And so if a Jew would go and talk to one of his Gentile buddies and tell them about Yahweh who created the earth uh, and, and talked about his God, his Gentile buddy would go, oh, okay, and just take the Jewish God and just add him to his list of other gods that he already believed in. And so for this reason and many others as well, that's not the only reason, but for that reason and many others, the Jews came to have a very specific way of thinking about God that mostly didn't use the word God. It's not that they never used the word God. Like I said, there's seven times in the New Testament where they do say Jesus is God. But that wasn't the primary way they thought about God. When the Jews thought about God, and now I'm going to give you a tool. I'm going to, I'm going to get uh, Darlene there to put that up on the screen. And I will have this on the, and you'll notice that Worshipped is, is missing an R there. Someone pointed that out to me. But uh, anyway, I'll fix that for the online version. But I'll put this online for you as well. When the Jews thought about God, instead of the word God coming to their mind, they thought about the divine name, Yahweh, and then they had five characteristics or categories. They had five characteristics or categories that they attributed only to Yahweh. So when they thought of God, the word God isn't what they thought. They thought about this divine being, Yahweh, who had these five characteristics that applied only to him and nobody else. Okay? 
And that's how they thought about God. So Yahweh, who is God? You would ask a Jew, who is God? Well, he is the one whose name is Yahweh. He is the one who created everything that exists. Nobody else helped him. Because he's the creator, he is the one who is sovereign over nature. Nothing and no one else, no angels, no demons are sovereign over nature. He is the one who controls the weather. He is sovereign over the kingdom of men. He's sovereign. Number three, he's the God of Israel. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I'll come back to this in this message as well. He's the one who did very specific things for Israel. Okay? Yahweh is not just any God. He's the God who did the things we see in here. Specific events in history, splitting the Red Sea, rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt, that sort of thing. He's that God. He's not just anyone. Okay? So remember, when they think about God, they're not thinking the word God. They're thinking these things. They're thinking Yahweh. They're thinking Creator. They're thinking Sovereign. They're thinking God of Israel. They're thinking Savior. The Old Testament is very clear. Only Yahweh can save. Only Yahweh can forgive sins. And then the fifth category that they attach to Yahweh is that Yahweh was the only one who was worthy of worship. And so this is the way they thought about God. When they talked about God, they talked about him like this. Very important. Now, when you understand this, the New Testament absolutely comes alive. And the reason it comes alive is because you're going to see that the New Testament writers, because they were all Jewish, Their biggest goal was to prove exactly that Jesus was God. They just didn't write, Jesus is God. What you'll find throughout the New Testament, page after page after page, chapter after chapter, is you will find the New Testament writers explicitly linking Jesus to passages about Yahweh from the Old Testament. You will find them saying, Jesus is the creator, Jesus is the sovereign, Jesus is the God of Israel, Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus is worthy of worship. They systematically and repeatedly, over and over again, put Jesus into each of the categories that are supposed to belong only to Yahweh, thereby proving that Jesus is God. Do you see that? And so that is their their biggest point. And once you understand this, your picture of Jesus, uh, this will rock your picture of Jesus. This will absolutely rock your picture of Jesus as you're reading the New Testament, and I'm going to tell you why. The reason it's going to rock your picture of Jesus is because we have this stubborn insistence in our Western hearts When we read the Old Testament, we think of God as being harsh and angry and wrathful against sin and holy and all those things, right? We think of God on Mount Sinai and his glory and his holiness and his wrathfulness and it was scary. And then when we think about Jesus, we think, even if in our heads we don't do this, in our hearts we totally do this. Our picture of Jesus is that Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, two totally separate beings. Is that not true? But when you understand this, you're going to find the exact opposite thing in the New Testament. What you will find is that the New Testament authors are 100% concerned to prove to you that the Old Testament God who came down on Mount Sinai is Jesus. Jesus is the Old Testament God taking on human flesh. They're not two separate beings. Jesus is the Old Testament God taking on human flesh. Here he is in front of your eyes which should do two things. It should radically change your picture of Jesus, and it should radically change your picture of the Old Testament God. I want to show you one example, and then I'm going to to take you through a few of these categories. Okay? My point here today is I don't have enough time. We could spend months. Literally, I have a long, long, long paper where I'm cataloging, cataloging, 
you know, in each of these categories, how the New Testament writers do that, okay? I'm, I'm working on that right now. But my point here isn't in one message. We could spend message after message going through each of those categories. I just want to teach you how to fish for yourself. Once you understand these, you're going to be reading the New Testament. You go, oh, that's what they're doing. They're plugging Jesus into that. They're plugging Jesus into there. But I just want to show you one example. The Old Testament God, Jesus is the Old Testament God. That's, that's who he is in the flesh. Let me, show you, uh, let me just show you one example. And again, I could show you Dozens, literally dozens. But John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41. And let's read here. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so, so here's the deal. Jesus is doing miracles. He's doing signs and wonders. Okay? Because he want, he's proving to the people that he is God. But they refused to believe in him, and now John is going to explain why they don't believe in Jesus. He's going to explain that using quotes from Isaiah. And I'm going to skip the, the first quote just because of time and stuff, but, but I'm going to go straight to the second quote. And here's the quote. This is why John is explaining why did the people not believe who Jesus is, okay? And he quotes Isaiah now, and the quote from Isaiah is in bold there, all right? He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them, okay? So uh, John quotes Isaiah here. This is why the Jews don't believe in Jesus. Quotes Isaiah. If he had just left it there, it'd be like, okay, no problem. That was cool. But then he goes and adds the very next sentence, and I, and I put a little space there just to highlight it. The very next sentence, though, he goes and adds something that should mess with our minds. Up to this point, we have no problem. This is why they don't believe in Jesus, because their hearts are hardened. That's from Isaiah. And then he goes and says something that should cause us to really question. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. If that doesn't cause you to question, you're not thinking very much this morning. Because Isaiah is in the Old Testament. When did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? Because John says that's the reason. The reason Isaiah said what I have in bold there, the reason Isaiah said that 700 years before Jesus was on the earth is that he saw Jesus' glory. So the question is, when did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? That's a good question. And I'm glad one or two or three of you are with us. Well, we're, what we need to do is we need to go find the context of that quote, Right? Because John says the reason for that quote is because Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. So, where does that quote come from? In your Bibles, uh, most, of, most Bibles footnote all the quotes from the Old Testament. So if you come across a quote while you're reading in the New Testament, and you go to the bottom of the footnote, it'll tell you where the quote comes from. And so if you're, if you're reading in John 12, 37, you want to look this up later this week or whatever, then you're going to find in the footnote, you're going to find that that quote in bold there comes from Isaiah 6, verse 10. So the question is, what happened in Isaiah chapter 6, right before verse 10, that would cause Isaiah to say he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, and would cause John to say that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory? Well, fortunately, you came to church today so you can have that question answered. Isaiah 6 is one of the most famous prophetic passages in the prophets. We sing songs about it. The train of his robe filled the temple. Let's go over there right now. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. This is the verses coming before the quote that you just saw up there in John chapter 12. Isaiah 6, verse 1 starts this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and the word there is Yahweh, is, the, is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is a famous passage, right? And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the voice was filled with smoke. So Isaiah is caught up into a vision of the throne room of God himself. Keep going, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. So Isaiah sees God in all his glory, and he is, it is just so overwhelming to him, the holiness, the glory, the majesty. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That I am actually looking at God. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now look at what he says. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And right after this comes the quote we see in John chapter 12. Now the interesting thing is here, okay, Isaiah 6 Famous passage, Isaiah sees the Old Testament God in all of his glory. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Then John quotes that passage in John chapter 12 and says that Isaiah saw Jesus in his glory. Why does John say that? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because Isaiah was looking at Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. And when that presses down on your heart, see, we don't think, when we see Jesus in the Gospels, we don't think Isaiah 6. That's a different God. That's the Old Testament God. He's really scary and awesome and glorious. And then there's Jesus. Thankfully, there's Jesus. He's a little dumbed-down version for us. And John is saying, no, 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 no. Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That God took on flesh and came and lived among us. That should stagger us. That should cause our, our brains, any Jewish person reading this, that is going to cause them either to scream out blasphemy or it's going to cause them to fall down and worship at Jesus' feet. That God and no one less. Just like if I go in my backyard and my neighbor says, hi, well, that's nice. But if Prime Minister Harper comes to my yard and says, hi, I go, oh, that's something totally different. The same thing is true when you see that Jesus is not just a man. He is Isaiah 6 in the flesh. I mean, that should just rock everything, everything you think about. He went to weddings. Think about that. Uh, the Isaiah 6 God came down in the flesh, and he loved people enough. He went to weddings. Right? I mean, John chapter 4. Okay? The, he turns the water into wine. Right? Think about that couple. So they get married. Years later, they're, they're reminiscing about their, their wedding day, and they're going over the, the guest list, and it's like, God was at our wedding. You ever thought about that? Like God was sitting at the, at the table over there. He had seconds of the dessert. <laughs> God was at our wedding. I mean, he participated in the dances. He supplied us with wine. Must not have been a Mennonite wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, if you're offended, I'll apologize for that one next weekend. <laughs> I mean, he went to weddings. That God took on flesh and came and lived among us. 
That tells us something about God, doesn't it? That says something about love, doesn't it? And again, when I come back to this, I'm going to come back to this at the end of this message. It should change our lives. It should change our lives. But I just want to develop this a little bit more because I want to help you guys to fish. I want to help you guys to fish for yourselves and see this for yourselves when you're in the New Testament. So I'm going to go back to that diagram, the identity of God. And I don't have time to go through all five categories, but I'll just zip through three categories. And I'll just show you a few examples from Creator, Sovereign, and God of Israel just to show you how the New Testament writers are very, uh, you know, they're, they're really concerned to put Jesus into each of these categories. Um, if we start with Creator, okay, the Old Testament, again, a Jew, when he thought of God, God is the one who created everything and nobody helped him. And the Old Testament is very clear about this. Okay? So in Isaiah 45, verse 18, Isaiah says this, For thus says the Lord Yahweh. Again, that's the word. Whenever you see Lord capitalized, it's Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, and in brackets Isaiah is freaking out, He is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is no other. So who created the, the earth and everything? And Yahweh. This is a huge theme in the Old Testament. Many, 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 many places. One more here. Isaiah 44 verse 24. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Who alone, notice that he didn't need any help. Who alone stretched out the heavens. Who spread out the earth by myself. Okay? So now you're a Jew living in Jesus' time, and you know it's blasphemy to say anyone else created the earth. And now these Christians come along, and they're writing stuff like, all over the place, Colossians 1.16, Paul says this, Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, he himself, a Pharisee, a Jew, and he writes this. Think about how this must have fried his brain, steeped in the Old Testament all of his life, and then he writes, for by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul can't scream it any, longer, any louder. Jesus is Yahweh. And this is all over the New Testament. They're just fitting Jesus into the categories that belonged only to Yahweh. Hebrews 1 verse 1 and 2, just one more example here. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And the point is, Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh created the earth. Jesus created the, the earth. And it's not a contradiction. Jesus is that God. The Old Testament God took on flesh and lived among us. That's who Jesus is. Well, we just move quickly now to sovereignty and any of these we could just really develop. But the Old Testament is very clear that because Yahweh created the earth, he's not subject to the laws of his creation. Does that make sense? So all over you're going to find passages, and we looked at a couple of these last week about Yahweh, you know, quieting storms and calming waves, just like Jesus did in the famous story in the Gospels. But in the Old Testament, it's very clear, because Yahweh made everything, gravity doesn't affect Yahweh. He made gravity, Right? You know, weather is at, Yahweh is sovereign because he made it, he controls it. All the weather he controls, everything he controls, okay? That's what the Bible says, that's what the Jews were very convinced of. And then what do we see all throughout the Gospels? We see what? Jesus exercising dominion over nature. Don't we see that everywhere? He's walking on water, he's shushing storms. He, he's making food out of nothing. I mean, he takes five small loaves and two fishes, and he makes food for thousands. 
He makes a coin appear in, a, in the mouth of a fish. He's, at, he's exercising total sovereignty. He doesn't obey the laws of gravity. They obey him. He speaks, and the weather just obeys. It just obeys, because it has to, because he's the one who made it. And then we have these Western scholars, these liberals, saying, well, he never said, I am God. Do your homework. Everything he was doing was screaming, I am God. And the Jews all knew it. That's why they crucified him for blasphemy. Third category, again, I wish we had time to just go through extensively all of these categories, but we'll just get through three, and, and the Savior one is really obvious. All over the place, Jesus is called Savior. And, uh, and uh, if you email me, I can show you some of the Old Testament passages. It's very clear in the Old Testament. All these amazing passages Yahweh is your Savior, Yahweh alone. And then you go to the New Testament, and over and over again, Jesus is the Savior. And again, clearly tying the two together, Yahweh, Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. But the God of Israel was a really important one to Jesus, or not to, I mean to, uh, to the Jews. The whole thing about the God of Israel. Again, um, it, you know, if, if a Gentile would come to a Jew, and we hear a lot of this these days now, but if a, if a Greek or a Roman would come to a Jew and say, hey, you know, I, I say Zeus created the world and I, I worship Zeus and you say uh, Yahweh created the world and you worship Yahweh. Hey, we're both talking about the creator of the world. I just call him one thing, you call him another thing to the same God. And right away to that, a Jew goes, no. Zeus and Yahweh are not the same God because did your God do, and then they go to the specific history. We serve a specific God who did specific things in the Bible. Did your God split the Red Sea? Did your God give manna to the people of Israel? Did your God rescue the Israelites out of Egypt and visit 10 miraculous plagues on them? Did your God do any of those things? And if the Greek or Roman says no, then the Jew says, not the same God. That's a really important part of God's identity, and it's a really important one. I said it a few weeks ago in the series, and I said it again now, because that's a really important point. As people nowadays are saying, hey, it's all the same God. You, that creator, the creator, the creator, just different names for the creator. It's all good. And that is false, false, false. The God we serve is a specific God with a specific history. And you can ask anyone who tells you that, did your God do fill in the blanks and show them in the Old Testament? And if their God didn't do it, it's not the same God. And so that's what a Jew would do. So a key part of Yahweh's identity is he's the one who did these things. Now, the fascinating thing then in the New Testament is how over and over again, the New Testament authors put Jesus into that identity and they give him credit for things that happened in the Old Testament that Yahweh did. And I'll show you one example here, okay? It, I just love this stuff. I love it. I love Jesus, all right? Here's Jude verse 5. There's only one chapter in Jude. So Jude 1 verse 5. Jude says this. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt. How many of you knew that Jesus saved the people out of Egypt? But we don't think about it that way because we have Jesus is the New Testament guy, and then there's the Old Testament God of, you know, Yahweh, who did all these spectacular miracles and rescued Israelites. And Jude just comes along and says, uh, Jesus, who saved the people of Israel, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is that God. Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Again, this is absolute, uh, you know, blasphemy for any Jew reading this. That's an insane thing. How can you say that? I saw Jesus. How can he be the one who 1,500 years ago did that stuff? How, what? And again, we've got these, uh, we've got liberals today saying, 
hey, you know, none of the earliest Christians, none of the earliest Christians believe Jesus is God. That was a later addition. You modern-day Christians, that was a later addition by the church, and the earliest Christians didn't believe that about Jesus. Again, do your homework. Do you know who Jude is? You know who wrote this? Jude is Jesus' brother. Jude is Jesus' brother, okay? Uh, well, half-brother, I guess, since Jesus didn't have any DNA from Joseph, okay? But Jude is his brother, okay? Uh, Jesus was his older brother. He, I mean, this guy will have most likely wrestled with Jesus and, uh, and, you know, done chores with Jesus and all sorts of stuff. He grew up with Jesus. Think about that. Think about what he's saying. Do you have a picture in your mind right now of your brother? I, I don't want to picture mine right now too much while I'm trying to preach, but... <laughs> he's right you have a picture of your brother in your mind right now. Judas saying, my brother is the one who rescued our forefathers 1,500 years ago out of Egypt and split the Red Sea and did all that other sort of stuff. Think about the implications of that. Think about the implications of that. I mean, these are the earliest Christians. These are the people that knew him the most somehow became convinced that he was a lot more than a man. My brother did that. Well, before I move on, there's one more thing I want to point out to you in, in this verse, and this one's going to annoy some of you, and it's part of the reason I want to share it. <laughs> Be honest, in the flesh. Let's go to the next screen there, Darlene, thank you. Everybody goes, okay, all fine and good. You know, Jesus is the one who rescued the, you know, the, the Israelites out of Egypt. Okay, I can go with that. But that's not the only thing he did. And again, the reason I'm sharing this here is because, again, we have this stubborn insistence in the West. We have a stubborn insistence. And part of it has to do with we want a false grace message. The false grace message is largely based on a false picture of Jesus. Remember last, year, last week I said, if your picture of Jesus is off, everything else in your theology will be off. Everything else will be off. And there are a lot of Christians today who think, I prayed a prayer once, it doesn't matter how I live the rest of my life. It does not matter because, thank God, Jesus is here and he's 100% mercy and no judgment and he holds off that angry God of the Old Testament and he just pours grace on me no matter how I live. And it's a false picture of Jesus fueling a false picture of grace. But I want you to notice here that Jesus is not 100% mercy and no judgment. Because his brother Jude doesn't just give him credit for rescuing the Israelites out of Egypt, does he? He also says something else there. He says that same Jesus is also the one who afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus did that. Jesus isn't just the one who did the miracles to help Israel out of Egypt. He's also the one when you read Numbers 25 and the people are committing sexual immorality and they're worshiping other gods. He's also the one that sends a plague and kills 24,000 of them. That's the same Jesus. And Hebrews says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same Jesus. So do you think that he cares less about sin than he did in Numbers 25 today? No. And we have this, see, we have this view of God that is, of the Trinity, that is, you know, good cop, bad cop. 
Here, here, here's angry God. Oh, I really hate sin. And Jesus, hold them off. No, back. I want to have mercy on them. False. Jesus said in the Gospels over and over again, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. That means everything Jesus does and everything the Father does, they are in absolute full agreement together on that. It's not like at the cross. We have this idea like, you know, God was really mad and he couldn't handle sin. So Jesus said, you know what? It's really good that you're holy and all that. So I'll just die and appease, you know, I'll be a sacrifice and I'll appease your anger. No, no. Jesus died to appease his own anger too. Him and the Father are absolute one. Jesus has, the Father has never judged anyone or punished anyone. And Jesus wasn't 100% there with him. Yes, let's punish them. And Jesus has never had any mercy or grace on anyone that the Father wasn't right there with him saying, I can hardly wait to have grace and mercy on this person. They're 100% together in heart and mind in everything. They always act together. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I do nothing that my Father isn't doing. And so there isn't this idea in the Trinity of God the Father hates sin. Jesus is just merciful and he doesn't judge. And so Jesus will save us from the Father. No, Jesus himself will judge all of those who do not truly repent and humble themselves before him. And of course, to those who humble themselves before him, I mean, we're all imperfect and weak. Oh, he loves to have mercy on the weak. He loves it. Him and the Father together love to have mercy on all those who will humble themselves. But to the proud, to the arrogant, to the rebellious, to those who enjoy wallowing in their sins, whether they call themselves Christians or not, Jesus himself will judge those people at the end of time. And so Jude says, Jesus is the one who afterward destroyed those who did not believe. All right, I want to finish this message now, and I want to go to, to Philippians chapter 2. And this is a famous uh, passage of Scripture, famous passage of Scripture and, uh, but it, when you realize who Jesus is, we have to take our Isaiah 6 picture of Jesus to Philippians 2, and that's something most of us Christians never do. Because we think Isaiah 6, that's one God, and then Philippians 2, that's Jesus. But no, no, that's the whole point. The whole New Testament is showing us Isaiah 6, that God, the train of his robe filled the temple, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. That God came, and then we have Philippians 2. That God took on flesh. And I want us to read that now. And this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, should cause our hearts to radically cry out for love, with love to Jesus, and we should radically change our lives in the way we think and live and treat people. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The first thing I want you to notice here is that this passage is meant to be obeyed. We are about to read something stunning about Jesus' love and Jesus' character. And Paul wants us to know, have this mind amongst yourselves. You be the same. You be the same. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now we need to just stop there for just a moment because the way we Westerners read this it almost seems like when Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, it almost sounds like he wasn't actually God. He was just in the form of God. He kind of looked like God, but he wasn't God. That's not what Paul is saying. I've just showed you a whole bunch of verses. I could show you literally hundreds of more. I could show you two dozen in Paul's writings alone where Paul explicitly, in many creative and shocking ways, explicitly links 
Jesus. And I, when I finish this paper, I'm going to make it available online. I think it'll be helpful for people as you read your New Testaments. But where Paul explicitly links Jesus into Yahweh passages all over the Old Testament. Okay? When Paul says he was in the form of God, he's not saying Jesus kind of looked like God, but he wasn't actually God. He's just saying he was God. You can't be in the form of God and not be God. Who, though he was God, he was Yahweh, Isaiah 6, that's him. Who, though he was Isaiah 6, glorified God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, I'm going to come back to that, but emptied himself. Now, what does it mean that he emptied himself? There are a lot of word of faith teachers out there now who are teaching that Jesus somehow lost some of his godness, some of his deity. How would he do that? And the whole point of the New Testament is to prove that he was Yahweh, not that he was somehow less than Yahweh. I mean, he's walking on water, he talks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. He's doing all of these things. He is God. So what did he empty himself of? The thing you have to understand again is how did the Jews conceive of God and people? The big gap for them, the big gap for them was the difference between high and low, king and servant, rich and poor. When Paul talks about emptying himself out, what he's talking about here is not an emptying out of who he is. He didn't become less God when he was on earth. It's an emptying out of all the trappings of being a king. And I'll show you this, the very next line, if you could put that up there. Because it tells us, right in the passage, it tells us how he empties himself out. He doesn't empty himself out of his godness. He empties himself out by what? By taking the form of a servant. See, Jesus is the God of Isaiah 6. He's on the throne. All the wealth that he wants is his. Hundreds of thousands, even millions of angels and servants and attendants waiting on him. He's in the heavenly city. He has all of that. He's a king. And he gives all of that up to come down and be a servant and be poor and be born in a manger. He empties himself out up of all the trappings and benefits of being the king of the universe. And I want to just prove to you, I'm going to come back to Philippians 2. I just want to show you one other passage from Paul, because this was a, a common theme in Paul. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul says this, okay? 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, okay? So the contrast, he emptied himself out. The contrast is he went from king to servant. He went from rich to poor. He went from having everything to having nothing. He went from having honor and fame and glory and everybody worshiping him every moment of the day. He came down and took on the form of a man and he let people spit on him and beat him and insult him and hate him and ignore him without killing them. He emptied himself out. He could have just stayed in heaven. He could have just said, This is where I belong, those filthy, sinful human beings. I'm going to just let them do what they want to do, and I'm going to stay up here. He could have done that, but he didn't. He emptied himself of all of the benefits of being God. In all of eternity, Yahweh had never once felt for an infinity number of years, without beginning, he had never once known what it was to be hungry. But he came down to earth, and he let himself be hungry. He had never once known what it was like to be tired. But he came down and took on flesh. He allowed himself to be tired. And he allowed himself to be hated. And he allowed himself to be disrespected. All things he had never allowed before. He'd never gone through in his throne room. 
He emptied himself. Let's go back to Philippians 2. Now let's see, what does this mean? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And, O Holy Spirit, may this impact our hearts. May this impact our hearts. He emptied himself of all the trappings and benefits of being a king. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Again, the point here is not, sometimes people read this and they don't know about the rest of the New Testament and what Paul is all saying about Jesus being God. They think, oh, he's trying to be God? Like he, he wants to be equal with God? No, no, he is equal with God, but he didn't consider his equality with God something to be held on to. He had all these benefits, all these riches, all this honor, but instead of grasping them close, instead of holding on to them, he gave them up for our benefit. Another way of reading this would be, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He did not consider all the benefits of the Godhead to be something to be used for his own advantage. Think about that. So when the devil comes to him and he's almost starved, 40 days he's gone without food, and the devil says to him, I want you to turn that stone into a loaf of bread. He doesn't do it. Now, could he have done it? No question. I mean, it wouldn't be a temptation if he couldn't have done it. I mean, it's not like the devil has never come to me and said, turn that stone into a loaf of bread, and I go, oh, you know, I don't think I should. <laughs> I mean, I don't think the devil, the devil doesn't fully know who Jesus is, but he knows he's someone. He tempts him to do something that he's pretty sure he can do, and Jesus won't turn a rock into a measly piece of bread when he's starved. But just a short while later, he's standing on the side of a mountain, and he's worried, it says in a passage, that when the people, all these thousands of harassed, helpless sheep, he's worried that when they walk home, they might get faint. So he takes five small loaves and two fishes, and he turns it into an all-you-can-eat buffet for thousands with baskets left over. But he won't turn a rock into a moldy piece of bread for himself. Did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Brothers and sisters, when that sinks into your heart, that should bring a sword of conviction to us like nothing. The God we serve did not use any of his benefits for his own advantage, only for us. And he'll go, a Roman centurion will come to him and say, I have this prized servant, and he's just about to die. And with a word, Jesus will keep him from dying. Peter's mother-in-law is dying of a fever. He'll just touch her. And she's not dying anymore. He'll keep her from dying. But when they pin him to a cross with nails, he won't keep himself from dying. He'll tell a storm to shut up because the disciples are afraid they're going to get swamped. But he'll let the Romans beat him and drive thorns into his head. He doesn't count equality with God, something to be used for his own advantage. He'll only use it for our benefit. He'll leave all the trappings of heaven and be poor and despised. He'll leave it all to love us for our advantage so that we can become rich. And the kicker here is that Paul says to us, have this same mind among yourselves. This is not just something we think about once in a message. I mean, if that ever impacts you, the Jesus that, you, that we are following, this is who he is. 
That's his character. He's sitting on the throne. He could just kill us all. He's holy and wrathful and awesome. But he loves us so much that he'll give up all of these benefits, Isaiah 6, glory, honor, fame, power. He'll come down and he'll use all of his benefits for our advantage. That should radically change the way we interact with each other, don't you think? That should make a difference in how you treat your spouse, don't you think? Oh, but my spouse is just not coming around and he's so foolish and he does all these things and she does this and she nitpicks me. That should change the way you treat your spouse, shouldn't it? That should treat the way we operate in a church like this, shouldn't it? Do we just come to church? I'm just going to show up. I'm going to get fed. It's my convenience. It's my comfort that matters. Or do we approach our lives saying, I am radically in love with the one who made me and he used everything in his life for the advantage of others. How can I use my time, energy, power, job, influence, money, how can I use everything I have for his kingdom and everyone else? That is what the Christian life looks like. You and me fall down in worship before Jesus, so blown away, so absolutely captured by the fact that all of his benefits he would use for my benefit, that we then turn around and live the exact same way. So the worship team is going to come out here now, and we are going to worship Jesus and love him. But as they are, I want to give you a challenge, and I really pray that you'll take this to heart, and you'll take some time, because it's not enough to just come to a message and, oh, that was a neat message about Jesus. It's not about the message. Message doesn't change you. Truth is, truth has to get into your heart and you have to fall in love with Jesus and then do what he did. My challenge to you this week is to go home and take this truth. Take Philippians 2 and Isaiah 6 and put them side by side and think about who Jesus is and what he did for you. And then my challenge to you is to ask Jesus these questions here. Spend some time with Jesus this week. And just offer up to him, write down time, money, marriage, work, church, family. Jesus, where am I living for my own advantage instead of for the advantage of your kingdom and the advantage of others? That should be the biggest question. That should be the biggest question on all of our hearts if you're actually a Jesus follower. And the second question I would ask you, I would challenge you to do is, to ask Jesus, show me two sacrifices I can begin to make to serve you and others more. And you know what? Some of you, you're already serving all out. I know some of you. You are radically in love with Jesus and you are giving him everything you have. And you know what Jesus is going to do when you ask him that? He's going to give you a pat on the back and he's going to say, well done, keep going. He's not even going to add anything. Some of you, he's just going to give you something small in your marriage. Something small maybe for the church. I don't know. Others of you, are living a radically self-centered life and you think the Christian life is, oh, Jesus is going to get me into heaven. Whew. No. Jesus gave up everything for you. He says, if you're my follower, you give up everything for everyone else too. And he's going to want you to put something on the line and sacrifice for him and he's going to speak to you. Thank goodness he's gracious and merciful. Amen? Let's pray. And then let's sing because we love him. Jesus, capture our hearts with who you are. Capture our hearts with who you are. I pray for every person here this morning, Jesus, that we are going to become radically Jesus-centered, you-centered. And we're going to become the biggest bunch of servant, humble, 
going for it, letting other people sometimes walk on us if that's what it takes, Jesus, turning the other cheek and serving, not for convenience, but serving out of love, Jesus, with everything we have. Jesus, make us that kind of a church. In your name we pray, amen.